Hello and welcome back once again to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. My name is Professor Greg Muller and as you know I'm the instructor for the course. Well today's lecture, Frontiers in Environmental Toxicology, is the last lecture uh, for the course Principles of Environmental Toxicology. With an end to anything, it's always a good time for careful reflection, not only in terms of the course content that we have just studied, but a reflection on where this content is, where these uh, bits and pieces of information, a synthesis, a foundation of knowledge in environmental toxicology places you as a student in this whole frontier of the future environment, uh, the future environment that perhaps you will change through your actions and activities. It's best at this point in time to reflect not only on your own studies in this course, but also your studies with respect to your own academic futures. In terms of our lecture today, our learning objectives are going to be to go back and review the course outline. We'll take a look at kind of where we've been so that we can kind of do some uh, uh, prospective uh, analysis of perhaps where you and uh, me, hopefully, uh, will be in the future in terms of the world's environment. We'll do this in uh, many ways. We'll take a look at uh, a little bit of ancient environmental history as well to put it into a bit of a context in terms of perhaps not geological time, but at least in the scope of human history. We'll try to examine the global environmental outlook. Where are we today? What sorts of issues, uh, what sorts of concerns are we going to have uh, in the near future and perhaps in the decades to come? We'll try to have you discuss some of the present and near future full-scale environmental emergencies as they have been described by leading scientists in the area of environmental science. We'll try to bracket that with some of the key environmental successes and analysis of some of the data gaps, some of the root problems and new approaches that people are looking into to solve some of the, the highest priority problems that we have. We'd like to have you understand some of the future challenges as well in this particular discipline of environmental toxicology. Well, in a course review, uh, if you recall, we did a, a quick introduction to toxicology, give you some, some background. Uh, we introduced Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. We did this only to uh, identify that, in fact, uh, one individual perhaps was able to articulate the complexities of science and scientific concern about the future of the environment, in this case, pesticides and their use in agriculture and how she was able to communicate that to the broader general public. This, in fact, was one of the catalytic actions in terms of the initial stages of the environmental movement here in this country, and it was paralleled in part of a larger amount of information that had been developed by scientists, by people analyzing man's uh, interaction and relationship to his or her environment. We then uh, did a lecture on the concepts of toxicology where we introduced some fundamental key uh, information about what toxicology is, definitions, uh, what is the scope of the professional uh, directions that individuals take in toxicology, what toxicologists do. Uh, we then took an analysis in terms of a case study on pesticide residues, and we took a pesticides in residues in foods uh, approach to focus us down. We didn't take as much an off-target, non-target 
environmental impact analysis. But what we wanted to do is look at the risk assessment, give you some background information, uh, perhaps useful knowledge on how these, as we have called them, economic poisons are used in public health. They're used in agriculture and many other applications, uh, for example, rodenticides, uh, to manage uh, man's uh, intimate relationship, perhaps, with the undesirable aspects of nature. We then went through some dose-response relationships, these quantitative relationships in toxicology, uh, fundamental and key uh, that uh, the dose makes the poison, as Paracelsus would tell us. Uh, we, we'd like to introduce that things are, in fact, uh, uh, toxic uh, if the dose is, hard, is uh, high enough. We then started going <coughs> across the interface, uh, the interface of chemistry, <coughs> into biology. And this is with the absorption of toxicants where these chemicals cross key barriers such as the epithelial barrier uh, prior to the subject of the next lecture, distribution and storage throughout the organism. We then talked about biotransformation and how in fact uh, the body, body organisms do have the capacity to biotransform, to actually uh, detoxify in most cases, but in some cases intoxicate a particular chemical uh, to increase its toxicity. Uh, this being fundamental uh, biochemistry, enzymatic chemistry, phase one, phase two chemistry, principally to make uh, molecules that are more lipophilic into molecules that are more easily soluble in the urine stream. We then reviewed a little bit of target organ toxicity, such as neurotoxicity, hepatotoxicity, nephrotoxicity, to give you an idea of some of this organ-specific endpoints of various types of toxicants and how clinical medicine analyzes in terms of clinical parameters, such as liver enzymes in the bloodstream, uh, the uh, hepatotoxic uh, effects of certain types of chemicals. We then did an interesting lecture that looked at how toxicants interact with the molecules of life. Uh, some of these uh, uh, disease endpoints can be heritable in terms of an intoxication of the parent will yield uh, an intoxication of the offspring. These areas were teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis. We then did another special uh, case study on dioxins and related compounds to give you a little bit of a focus area on a particularly uh, interesting uh, range of chemicals. Uh, these lipophilic chemicals have high degree of persistence in the environment, but uh, dioxins are known as well for their very high potency in terms of toxicity. What we're dealing with in terms of the regulatory science arena is trying to better define the clinical beginnings of toxicosis with respect to uh, levels of exposure of dioxins. This introduced us very well into the next subject, which was risk assessment and risk management. And we went through basically the, the EPA um, CERCLA Superfund uh, uh, exposure and assessment methodology. This is the standardized human health risk assessment methodology that is currently being used. There are uh, many needs uh, in terms of enhancing and making risk assessment better. Remember that 
A risk assessment is a guess on future outcomes. Any time that we can enhance our models to make our guesses stronger, better, more science-based, uh, this presents a tremendous opportunity for future students in terms of coming up with these models and these new approaches to risk assessment. We bracketed that with the challenges of risk communication. The dread, the fear that we have uh, even in this past week, some of the challenges uh, that were outlined in, in uh, Time magazine on risk perception, why we worry about things that we shouldn't necessarily worry about when in fact we ignore or isolate uh, those things that we really should be concerned about. We then did another special topic, the biogeochemistry of selenium and arsenic in drinking water. And these oxyanions per, uh, give us a, a nice perspective on both wildlife toxicity and human health risk assessment, human health risk assessment of arsenic in drinking water. We then took a look at a very interesting dynamic, this quiet chemical warfare that occurs in nature, also known as ecological biochemistry. The chemical information, the chemical weaponry that is used back and forth in predator-prey relationships in nature. We then examined uh, a chemical focus, a physical focus in terms of environmental toxicology, looking at abiotic transformation, how chemical reactions happen, the energy dynamics of uh, chemistry that is driven by photolysis from the sun. We use that as an introduction to uh, environmental chemodynamics, looking at the energy bookkeeping of environmental chemistry, the role of thermodynamics in terms of allowable levels of thermodynamic uh, uh, spontaneity, if you will, in chemical reactions. The chemical kinetics, how fast reactions happen, uh, even if they are allowed in terms of uh, the energy bookkeeping. We use this as a basis of study for environmental transport. Uh, why chemicals go from one place to another in terms of this energy bookkeeping and all of the drivers involved in the analysis of environmental transport. We then took a look at uh, four case studies. Again, the idea here in these case study uh, lectures, four of them total, was to <coughs> broaden out your analysis of the application of environmental toxicology into real-life case studies. Some of those case studies were decades old, but some of them happened uh, within the last five years or so, recent history, if you will. We learned that, in fact, uh, sometimes man is challenged in terms of environmental impacts of industrial operations, uh, human error, mistakes that happen, and just plain uh, we didn't have the science or engineering knowledge at the time these actions and activities were happening to know the best thing to do in a certain situation in terms of environmental management. We then uh, did uh, a Socrates Award lecture. Uh, Professor Margaret von Braun uh, gave us an analysis of global pollution concerns, the 10 most polluted areas in the world. Eye-opening for some in terms of the scope of contamination, the scope of the concern. It was very interesting that uh, Margaret, in fact, has done uh, the work and some of the case study analysis herself and with her research group on a key lead intoxication episode in the Russian Far East 
that uh, this class did as a risk assessment in IEEUBK analysis of blood lead levels in these Russian Far East towns. We then did an analysis, uh, an introductory analysis of endocrine disruption and the endocrine disruption hypothesis and how it has developed uh, pretty much uh, in terms of most of the data in the past 15 years or so, although scientists were concerned about this as early as the 1950s. We then uh, finished out the course looking at uh, if you are looking to benchmark uh, your uh, uh, current state uh, against perhaps a future state, how do you monitor chemicals? How do you monitor for change? How do you monitor for environmental impact at the level of quality and program efficiency that you perhaps need in this wonderfully expensive arena of environmental analysis? We then uh, finished out uh, last time with an analysis of regulating chemicals. We took uh, a, a, an overview, uh, a structural summary, if you will, of uh, environmental law, administrative law, administrative uh, regulation in terms of how policies and regulations are developed in the U.S. system. We suggested that, in fact, internationally in many countries, these ha there are similar uh, criteria, similar laws. Uh, in my international travels, I find that the U.S. EPA is often quoted, often uh, copied in terms of uh, their uh, approach to managing uh, human interactions with the environment. But today's uh, analysis uh, of, of our course is uh, essentially our recent history. Uh, as we look out into the future and do a prospective analysis, we need to identify those issues that perhaps are going to be the major issues for the students uh, taking this course. One of the major issues is the question of global resources and their sustainability. Um, this is an issue that most students uh, that are, are reasonably well-read have some idea, some information about. Uh, this picture done in, in 2002 uh, on a square kilometer by square kilometer basis. This is not uh, somebody's, an artist's rendition. This is an actual photograph of the planet, the first time ever in high resolution. It gives us a sense of uh, that uh, although toxicology crossing an organismal barrier is an intimate concern, chemicals themselves and our relationship to the environment can have global impacts. If we look at these global impacts, we need to be concerned about the future and about the concept of sustainable development. You may have seen this definition as the backbone definition of sustainable development from the Brundtland Commission uh, convened by the UN and reported in 1987. Sustainable development is development to meet the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. A definition worth uh, taking to memory. In 2005, and again this is in recent history, a substantial report came out and I invite you to go onto the internet and read this report in completion. It has been out uh, for over a year now and there are already reports coming back in on how the findings of the MEA have been in, introduced in terms of governing, governance, and even education like we are experiencing today. In the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, uh, there was an observation, and this is done by uh, uh, practicing scientists uh, in the arena. This is not politicians drafting this document, this analysis. They concluded that in the past 50 years, humans have changed ecosystems more rapidly than any other comparable time in human or geological history of the planet. 
And as a result of this, 15 of the 24 ecosystem services, things like clean water, uh, clean air, um, these services, if you will, these life support systems on Earth are being degraded and used unsustainably. Uh, the study involved 1,360 experts from 95 countries over four years of analysis. So this is a substantial analysis of recent uh, past environmental history and identification of some of the challenges for the future. In terms of past, it's not a bad idea for us to go into the way past, the ancient history of uh, man's relationship uh, to his or her environment. Uh, I happened to be fortunate enough last year to have a Fulbright Fellowship to, to uh, teach in Greece uh, and uh, teaching in the island of Lesvos where Aristotle uh, actually started his first school, Aristotle, the first university professor. I found myself drawn to his readings and his analysis, his extremely poignant analyses of nature. Some of these Greek philosophers actually used imitation of nature as the key to understanding life itself. In terms of uh, early observations, Aristotle was particularly uh, uh, focused in terms of uh, what he and his colleagues at that point in time, 350 BC, in his book, Metrologia, uh, a very interesting quote. Uh, we talk about our, our current observations of things like global climate change, uh, global warming. Uh, this is uh, from 350 BC. Uh, 2,300 years ago. The quote is, change has happened in Greece to the land about Argos and Mycenae. In the time of the Trojan Wars, Argos was marshy and could support only a small population, whereas the land of Mycenae was in good condition and thus superior. Now the opposite is the case. The land of Mycenae has become dry and barren, while the Argive land has become fruitful. Now the same process that has taken in place in this small district must be supposed to be going on over whole countries and on a large scale. So here is perhaps the earliest observation of man's ability to change the environment. Uh, perhaps uh, we should focus and reflect on what the ancients had to say in terms of relationships to nature. Greek mythology linked the concepts of justice and nature very early on. In fact, the goddess Themis, the goddess of law, was the daughter of Gaia, the goddess of the earth. And so this relationship of humankind to the environment, the relationship to nature, was a part of uh, Greek mythology. Uh, the Greek playwright uh, Aeschylus in 500 BC referred to barbarians and, uh, as people that didn't understand nature in his tome Prometheus Bound. The quote is, though they had eyes to see, they saw to no avail. They had ears but understood not. But like shapes and dreams throughout their time, with, without purpose, they wrought all things in confusion. They lacked knowledge of houses, turned to face the sun, dwelling beneath the ground like swarming ants in sunless caves. And so again, uh, relationship of humankind to nature is an important part of Greek uh, history. 
In classical Greece, they were able to observe uh, changes in their own environment due to uh, the interaction of local populations. From 500 BC forward, Greek coastal cities became landlocked after deforestation, deforestation primarily uh, in this Mediterranean climate with very f uh, limited resources, uh, wood resources, wood that was used for fuel, for shipbuilding, and for other construction. Uh, this uh, overforestation, deforestation activity uh, allowed uh, erosion, soil erosion, and this erosion actually siltated some of the bays and mouths of rivers. You've probably all heard the term a meandering river. This came from uh, a place in the uh, northeastern part of the Aegean Sea. Uh, there was in ancient Greece, uh, there was uh, the Meander River was so silted that it became twisted and turning, and to this day it, it is still uh, a silted, uh, erosion-impacted uh, water body. The Greek philosopher Plato in 400 BC compared the hills and mountains of Greece to the bones of a, of a wasted body. All the richer and softer parts, he says, have fallen away and the mere skeleton of the land remains. And so, again, a focus on ancient history, ancient Greece in this particular case, that in fact uh, man has been observing his or her impacts on the environment for well over 2,000 years. Herodotus' history, a Greek uh, uh, historian in 450 BC, uh, recounted the meeting of uh, uh, King Cratius and Solon. Uh, Cratius of uh, Lydia, the king of Lydia, was probably the wealthiest, most powerful individual. This was in Eastern Asia. Uh, Solon was uh, the uh, father, if you will, of uh, modern law. Uh, and in ancient Athens actually uh, wrote and uh, the first uh, interaction of the legal system uh, with a, a population, a community. Uh, some say that uh, because they had adopted his on a 10-year trial, his, his recommendations on interactions in the, in the court uh, of uh, Athens, uh, he took off and left town uh, so that, uh, in fact, he couldn't personally be challenged. On his journeys and his meeting with uh, essentially the most powerful uh, individual, uh, King Croesus, uh, uh, at that uh, time, King Croesus ha had a big ego, uh, as uh, probably a leader of his power and wealth had, and, and uh, asked uh, Solon, who was also regarded as being a wise man, uh, who is the happiest and blessed of all humankind. Uh, and in this story, it's apparent that Croesus was uh, essentially fishing for compliments uh, from Solon, saying, of course you are king. But in fact, the response of the wise Solon was, uh, of course it is impossible for one who is human to have all the good things together, just as there is no one country that is sufficient of itself to provide all good things for itself. But whoso, po whoso possesses most of them continuously and then ends his life graciously, he, my lord, may justly win the name you seek, at least in my judgment. And then he goes on to clarify, but one must always look to the end of everything, for to many the God has shown a glimpse of blessedness only to extirpate them in the end. Some cautious warning that, in fact, uh, uh, as we collect our treasures, uh, there are more important things in life uh, than uh, material possessions, than what you have, our health, uh, if you read certain translations, our health, uh, relationship with family, uh, who we are and what we are, not what we possess. 
This introduces uh, for us uh, the concept of sustainability. Sustainability, uh, sustainable development will be important parts of your future. You will be asked to justify the sustainability, the life cycle assessment of many of the actions and activities that will uh, be a part of your future lives and your future careers. It's good for us to review the fundamental sustainability principles. They are efficiency, doing more with less, conservation, using fewer resources, resource substitution where in fact you use plentiful and safer resources, resource recycling that we extend the life cycle of what we have pulled out of the earth or used in terms of resource consumption, and that we promote sufficiency, we promote sustainable consumption. It's been said if the world's population had the same level of resource consumption as the United States, we would need six planets worth of resources. So in fact, there are some that consider us as Americans to be a part, if not the major part, of the problem in terms of global sustainability. Some of the core features of sustainable development, it's anthropocentric, uh, meaning uh, it's us. Uh, we have to look at our own behaviors, how we relate to the environment, how we relate, how we consume, what we consume. Another feature is generational equity, that in fact we're thinking ahead like the Native Americans that thought seven generations ahead in terms of being future-oriented. It's associated with global uh, economic development with equity. Uh, the idea being that uh, just because we have, that we can't isolate the have-nots and say, you can't do it, uh, we've already consumed the world's resources. Uh, it's precautionary. Uh, we have to look at physical sustainability of resource consumption in a total life cycle assessment. Uh, global climate change, global warming, CO2 in the atmosphere is only something that has really kind of come to play in terms of an observational dynamic uh, in terms of climate change, in terms of CO2 levels in the atmosphere in the past 20 years or so. The basic problem that we find in sustainability and sustainable development is that we have increasing world population. That world population wants the affluence that we have and the technology that we have, and this will have overall impact. When you look at the population of the world, just over 6 billion, uh, projected in 2050 to be almost 9 billion, and that 9 billion number is actually an improvement because earlier uh, estimations of population growth, models of population growth uh, predicted as high as 12 billion people by 2050. Uh, it is going to be an increasing challenge as human population increases to feed, uh, to shelter, uh, to power uh, these uh, uh, increased community sizes and in the increase in population. Some of the population pressure that is in terms of development uh, is coming from all over the world, but the big, large uh, blue segment in here in terms of uh, the order of magnitude or the relative magnitude is coming from Asia and the Pacific countries. Uh, we're all increasing in population. As it turns out, uh, this population growth curve is going to demand more resources in the future. 
in terms of the affluence uh, of these uh, affluence desires of these future populations, if you look at the world uh, gross domestic product, right now we're looking at in the trillions of dollars, about $40 trillion. In terms of the GDP projected for 2050, we're looking at uh, normalized values uh, well in excess of $100 trillion. And so as economies develop, as resources become in greater demand, there will be greater challenges. Currently, in terms of vehicle ownership, the United States, uh, in terms of vehicles per 1,000 people, we're up uh, approaching 800 vehicles per 1,000 people. The uh, looming challenge in terms of resource source consumption is in the large population areas of China and India. If we project out into the future, same sort of desire for affluence, the same desire for technology in these high population density uh, countries like China and India. In fact, uh, the uh, resource consumption uh, challenges in terms of sustainability will be even greater. Uh, the areas of Midtown Manhattan here in terms of air quality, uh, resource consumption dynamics uh, are now just starting to show. This is an aerial photograph of the Yangtze River Valley in China. There are current uh, trends that suggest that the consumption of the world's iron, steel, and concrete is about, uh, has increased to about 30% uh, for the developing countries in uh, Asia. As individuals uh, are driven towards their desires for technology and affluence, we will transition from perhaps appropriate or uh, uh, less impacting technologies to major urbanization, major industrialization, major resources. We have to draw attention to making sure that these technologies, as they are developed, become appropriate technologies, lighter impact technologies, sustainable technologies. We have to have an eye on the future, which is extraordinarily difficult in a struggling uh, environment in terms of struggling growth, struggling to meet the demands of a people uh, developing to improve their country, their national status, their economic and cultural situation. In terms of how governments and uh, society interact with uh, sustainability and sustainable development, uh, this can be through uh, government and development of environmental policies. Uh, government can have direct regulations, so we can law make laws in democracies uh, and in other forms of government that actually uh, limit or manage uh, sustainability issues. Government can also introduce economic incentives and instruments. These market-based uh, incentives uh, establish fees for certain activities as a reward cycle, perhaps, in terms of even uh, the ability of governments to do tax rebates for uh, pollution prevention. There's also the uh, less uh, uh, talked about aspect, perhaps even more important uh, aspects of governance. Uh, governance is the informal attribute of environmental policy. There are many tools for governance, uh, environmental management systems that a company may have, uh, things like ISO 14000, uh, the International uh, Technical Standard Order for uh, Green Manufacturing, if you will. Uh, concerned individuals, even management of your own households. Do you recycle? Uh, do you uh, shop uh, sustainable uh, in terms of how you uh, challenge your own personal consumption habits uh, with essentially your own goals and the future of human relationship with the planet?
The land impacts, if we look in recent history, uh, in, in terms of sustainability, there's many indicators in the global environmental outlook that are of great concern. Most scientists uh, look even in the past several decades and uh, project out in the future with a with uh, great concern. This is Landsat image uh, of the Saloon River in Senegal. In the top here is this was in uh, 1972 and 20 years later in 1992. What you need to notice on here is the density of the dark red areas uh, in the center, uh, less dense in the bottom uh, uh, figure. Uh, this particular uh, uh, diagram shows that even in this particular river delta, which is a protected area, there has been substantial development, uh, double-digit uh, uh, percentage at least, of loss of this protected area, this fragile ecosystem, as we've talked about, environmental toxicology, estuarine systems, uh, that uh, even in the past uh, two decades, even in a protected area. If we take a look at some global statistics, the area under arable uh, in permanent crops, and these are in million hectares, you can see that uh, in general, uh, most countries are reasonably flat. The Latin America development, developing countries are steadily increasing. Uh, Europe in the green is uh, pretty much consistent or constant or decreasing, but there is a substantial increase in terms of the burgeoning populations in the Asia-Pacific countries uh, and a response in terms of local agricultural development. This means more land being put into agricultural production and that means more resources in terms of irrigation water and in fertilizer consumption. Overall though, fertilizer consumption globally uh, has uh, been somewhat flat. Uh, in Europe, uh, there has been a strong decline of fertilizer consumption in terms of kilograms per capita per year. In terms of area of in, uh, under in, uh, irrigation, these are agricultural lands and again a million hectare uh, units. You can see that uh, Asia and the Pacific countries have substantial increases over the past uh, 25 years or so. As we take more land into agricultural production in some of these countries, we start uh, bordering uh, on other uses for various types of land, whether that be uh, urban areas or industrial areas. This particular uh, slide shows uh, agricultural lands uh, next to a mining slag uh, waste product uh, area. There's an interface between the human food chain and industrial waste byproducts. Uh, chemical degradation uh, is responsible for about 12% uh, of global soil degradation. Soil degradation from various types of uh, activities, primarily uh, overuse in agriculture, uh, erosion from land use practices, uh, tillage practices has been significant. The dark red areas, including the United States here, and the lighter red areas show that in fact where man has been, there has been significant soil degradation. Topsoil, uh, the fertile uh, outer shell uh, of uh, these this land, uh, takes uh, uh, hundreds of years, thousands of years in some cases to develop. Uh, it is washing out in many cases, washing out to the sea. 
Water pollution continues to be uh, a global trend. Uh, in some countries in Asia, 98% of the wastewater coming out of municipalities, coming out of industry, actually gets dumped directly into the oceans. In the Caribbean, it's uh, up to about 90%. Many areas of the world actually do still use the ocean's waters as a dumping ground for wastewater. Some of the water quality indicators over the past uh, uh, two decades uh, have also shown uh, slight increases. Uh, the reason this is of concern is because with groundwater degradation, water quality degradation, there is more likely uh, a source of human uh, disease. Uh, when we look at dissolved nitrogen, we use it as an indicator of whether or not what we are doing on the surface is in fact impacting groundwater. What we can look at is an, as an indicator of chemical pollution, such as uh, pesticides, but also as microbial pollution, uh, pollution, for example, from E. coli or coliform bacteria, uh, from wastewater uh, use and, and uh, septic tanks on the surface. Uh, some of the indicators suggest that Europe is continuing to be, uh, because of its population density, uh, dramatically impacted uh, with about three part per million uh, overall, uh, three part per million total nitrogen. When you start getting towards ten part per million uh, total nitrate uh, in water, the primary form of nitrogen in groundwater, uh, you start having the crossover uh, into risk situations that lead to methemoglobinemia in infants. In BOD or biological oxygen demand, uh, again another water quality indicator uh, that uh, will uh, is an indicator of cultural eutrophication, uh, the formation of algae mats on water. You can see that in Latin America over the past 20 years, a substantial increase in overall uh, water degradation. We have the concept that we've introduced here of uh, persistent organic pollutants. And we've talked about in some of our case studies and some of our analyses that, in fact, these persistent pollutants such as PCBs can actually volatilize. Uh, they can globally hop. And they can be transboundary great distances, if not to hundreds and thousands of miles across the globe. Uh, if it, in fact, is persistent, it has the ability to have a global impact. All of these processes suggest in the future that we have to have great attention to these persistent bioaccumulative and toxic chemical compounds that we introduced here in this course. We talked briefly about the Antarctic ozone hole, how it seems to be stabilizing, but perhaps not fast enough. Uh, they're projecting uh, decades worth of uh, perhaps uh, uh, time before uh, we see that a retreat uh, of the ozone hole. Uh, for the first time ever uh, in the development of the Antarctic ozone hole, we saw that human activity can actually have a direct short-term uh, uh, interaction with the, uh, the ecosphere of the planet. Uh, chlorinated fluor fluorocarbons uh, have only been in use uh, for several uh, decades, about four or five decades, uh, as refrigerants. And in that time, we have managed to, in fact, have a dramatic impact on the sustainability of at least one part of the globe. 
The good news, as we have talked about in the course, is that the consumption of chlorinated fluorocarbons, CFCs, has decreased uh, steadily. You can see that in this particular graphic, um, the decrease, the major red curve here, which is the global decrease, has been significant since 1989. So in relatively rapid time, the world's populations, uh, industries have responded. Scientists have come up with alternatives in terms of uh, alternative refrigerants. And so this is a good indicator that, in fact, we, as a, as a people, uh, can be responsive uh, to uh, planetary, global sorts of uh, uh, challenges. In this next slide, we have the energy use per unit of GDP. We see that, in fact, it's gradually decreasing. So the efforts that we are doing in terms of energy efficiency, and that can be a cost basis in terms of energy, uh, the days of cheap petroleum hydrocarbon, cheap gasoline, uh, have been announced as being over. Uh, fossil fuel consumption now has to be met with uh, enhanced uh, conservation, enhanced efficiency in terms of engineering efficiency of the types of engines and motors and other processes that use these dramatic resources. There have been several countries, including North America, uh, that have uh, substantially increased uh, their uh, unit uh, of energy per unit uh, gross domestic product. The total renewable energy supply has risen considerably over the last decade. If you take a look at uh, this graphic uh, wind uh, generation in terms of the uh, amount of kilowatts per hour of energy produced has uh, increased uh, dramatically over the past uh, decade and a half since 1990. And there are other uh, um, energy, uh, renewable energy, uh, uh, such as uh, solar energy, that are also seeing increased use. Uh, there are most people in the energy field suggest that uh, we will have to come up with better ways, uh, non-petroleum hydrocarbon um, ways to manage uh, the impact of uh, global climate change uh, with needs, in ever-increasing needs for energy and energy consumption. One of the byproducts of uh, energy, and primarily in coal burning, is uh, the concentration of sulfur dioxide in air. In selected cities in this graphic, in 1985 to 2000, you can see that uh, in New York, Mexico City, and pretty much a, a, a quite a few international cities, uh, there has been dramatic increases uh, overall in terms of uh, the uh, global impacts of uh, and release of sulfur dioxide over time, some countries doing better than others. In uh, the Netherlands, they've actually done an analysis of what behaviors, uh, what changes have actually led to this reduction in sulfur dioxide emissions. The sulfur dioxide emission here, down here in the bottom dark green line, is the overall uh, emission. The largest segment of responsibility in terms of uh, changes of behavior is flue gas desulfurization. Other major impacts included a reduced sulfur content in coal, uh, improved efficiency, and a fuel shift uh, away from coal. So overall, sulfur dioxide emissions uh, have decreased. Sulfur dioxide yields uh, acid rain, which can release heavy metals into aquatic ecosystems uh, and have degradation on uh, plant life and plant systems as well. Basically, due to the removal of tetraethyl lead from uh, leaded gasoline, um, 
the concentration of lead in micrograms per cubic meter in air in selected cities has gone down over the past uh, several decades. This graphic from 1985 to the 1999 shows that in most major cities uh, there has been a dramatic drop following a switch in the type of fuel additive. Well, if we take a look at the global environmental outlook, uh, this is a document that is done periodically about every two or three years by the United Nations Environmental Program. And what uh, this particular document does, it draws together about 200 scientists uh, talking about uh, uh, current needs, uh, current analyses, what's working, what's not but then projecting out into the future uh, what will happen if, uh, in fact, uh, we don't change uh, our particular practices of today. As it turns out, global emissions of carbon dioxide uh, reached nearly 24 million tons in 1996, and this was about four times the 1950 total. And so we have dramatically increased as we have industrialized many different countries on the planet. Without the Montreal Protocol, the protocol that limited uh, the production uh, and use of uh, chlorinated fluorocarbons, levels of the ozone depleting substances would have been five times higher by 2050 than they are today. And so, in fact, this is a, uh, an, uh, a very dramatic success in terms of, again, changing behaviors. In 1996, 25% of the world's approximate 4,600 mammal species and about 11% of the almost 10,000 bird species were at significant risk of total extinction. Uh, this has been a dramatic decline uh, and potential decline in the future of biodiversity of the world's species. If we take a look out uh, into the future and extrapolate present consumption, uh, two out of every three people uh, by 2025 20, will be uh, living in water stress conditions. This is a drinking water uh, dynamic. More than one half of the world's coral reefs are threatened. Uh, about 80% uh, are at risk in the world's populated areas. Um, exposure to hazardous chemicals has been implicated and very numerous adverse effects on humans uh, from birth defects to cancer. Global pesticide use results in about three and a half to five million acute poisonings per year. And so this uh, is perhaps best uh, uh, referred to as misuse, uh, but uh, uh, agricultural uh, farm workers are probably the least protected uh, in terms of uh, chemical protections of agricultural pesticides. Some 20% of the world's uh, most susceptible drylands are affected by human-induced soil degradation, and the livelihoods of more than one billion people are at risk because of soil degradation and global desertification in many areas of northern Africa, the Mediterranean, and in parts of China. Global CO2 emissions uh, continue to mount. This graphic uh, gives you uh, an idea of the increase uh, since 1950. Over the past decade, it's been 1.3% percent per year, 1.3 percent, uh, or nearly 300 million tons uh, a year. The anthropogenic emissions of CO2 were slightly higher uh, in the latest reported year, which was uh, the year 2000. Uh, you can see that on a uh, uh, total, uh, totalized basis, North America uh, leads in terms of the numbers of tons of CO2, and this is primarily uh, because of the automobile and some industrial uh, operations, coal-burning power plants, uh, use of fossil fuels, uh, these in emissions are increasing. 
We've also seen an average temperature increase in the United States. This graphic gives the trend line and the average annual temperature globally. Uh, we've seen about a 0.6 degree centigrade uh, increase over the past century. Uh, there's great discussion about what the tipping point is in terms of temperature rise, the tipping point in terms of changing dramatically uh, the various environmental support systems on the planet. Uh, people think that that tipping point might be one degree, uh, so we're over halfway there. Others think that it might be two or two and a half degrees. Scientists uh, that look at global climate change are looking at some indicators uh, around the planet. Uh, this is Eurasian River Discharge, an anomaly that seems to be tracking the surface temperature, surface air temperature. Essentially, surface air temperature rising uh, is increasing snow melt and snow runoff, glacier melting, uh, increasing the amount of fresh water leaving uh, terrestrial systems into the ocean systems. You can see that uh, here the discharge anomaly shown in red is increasing and appears to be tracking with increase of temperature as would be reasonable in terms of increasing climate uh, temperature changes. Part of the problem with this rush of fresh water into the saline ocean system is declining salinity levels. Uh, these graphics are a little bit hard to see, but you can see downward trends. This is North Atlantic over the past four decades, declining trends in salinity. The ocean is becoming less salty. Uh, what happens here is it changes the overall water chemistry, the density, the ability of the water to actually carry uh, uh, CO2, the ability of the water to actually uh, modulate uh, temperatures uh, throughout uh, all of its uh, uh, cycling throughout the, the ocean systems. Uh, this gives an ocean circulation diagram in terms of the warmer waters and then the deeper cold waters. With a change in the uh, thermohaline circulation, there will be, according to these scientists, a change in ocean circulation. Since ocean circulation uh, dictates weather patterns, dictates uh, environment uh, in terms of weather uh, to many parts of the globe, uh, there can be dramatic increases or decreases in temperature and in storm activity, such as hurricanes, just due to the increased amount of fresh water uh, appearing and diluting the salt water in the oceans. When these 200 scientists uh, in the uh, GEO report, uh, Global Environmental Outlook, uh, surveyed, um, were surveyed uh, for what they considered to be the major emerging issues, uh, climate change was the most cited issue, but then when you take a look at water scarcity and pollution and all the different attributes, uh, freshwater pollution, waste disposal, air pollution, soil deterioration, down here uh, that, uh, as it turns out, water uh, is actually the uh, greatest concern uh, for future uh, management of sustainability. These scientists uh, also were able to uh, declare full-scale emergencies in their consideration of what the major concerns are in terms of our present uh, relationship uh, with the planet. Uh, the world water cycle demand is uh, at a crisis stage. Uh, land degradation has reduced fertility and agricultural potential in many areas. Tropical forest destruction has gone too far to prevent irreversible uh, damage. The amount of rainforest that is being destroyed has a dramatic impact in terms of uh, the ability of uh, the atmosphere to balance carbon dioxide and with the impact of uh, pot potential for uh, greenhouse effect. 
Many of the plant's uh, species have already been lost or condemned to extinction just in terms of they have to be heavily managed uh, if they're going to survive and perhaps even protected. Um, and this has to do with development, encroaching populations, community borders, and resource consumption in many of the habitat areas for many species. Many marine fisheries have been grossly overexploited and recovery will be slow if ever. There are current and more recent projections out in the last month or so that suggest uh, by 2050 uh, that uh, many of the world's fisheries will be completely fished out uh, at the current state of consumption. The additional full-scale emergencies suggest that more than half of the world's coral reefs are threatened by human activities. Coral reefs are an abundant life resource in terms of the marine fishery. The urban air pollution problems are reaching a crisis uh, dimensions in many of the megacities in the developing world. Uh, uh, Mexico City uh, has got an incredibly uh, challenged uh, atmospheric pollution situation. High density uh, urban areas in many parts of the developing world have uh, destructive air pollution, air quality. It's probably too late to prevent global warming as a result of greenhouse gas emissions, and most uh, informed scientists suggest that even massive changes uh, uh, to present consumption will only have a slow uh, relationship uh, to uh, changing or steering it uh, so that, in fact, it doesn't cross what uh, many project as being the tipping point. This all sounds very doom and gloom, and in fact, uh, some of it is extraordinarily serious and extraordinarily challenging in terms of you and your futures uh, and uh, the uh, world that you will in uh, inherit in terms of uh, your careers. Uh, we have to, the, uh, in terms of addressing some of these future challenges, look at uh, the recent past uh, and even the present uh, for some key environmental successes to give us kind of hope for the future. Uh, we have some hope that the ozone layer is expected to have largely recovered uh, within a half a century. Uh, there are still some concerns in terms of dynamics of other chemicals uh, that we are still using. But in fact, uh, 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 this is at least encouraging that we've been able to eliminate this particular chemical and at least slow or uh, bring to a halt the increase uh, of the ozone hole. The first international steps have been taken to uh, tackle the issue of the global climate change. Uh, Kyoto uh, signatories uh, are increasing yearly. Uh, the United States, uh, who would have thought uh, that we would have uh, a former vice president uh, with a uh, best-selling book and uh, a video uh, that has essentially declared that this is a more important issue. Uh, for him, Al Gore, uh, than perhaps seeking the presidency once again. Uh, this is a dramatic change. Where you come down on this issue is not politics. Uh, and in fact, most people are starting to address this as being uh, an important, or if not the most important, part of our future. The public is now much more concerned about environmental issues. Uh, when it impacts you, uh, it uh, it crosses the threshold uh, from uh, the uh, abstract uh, to the real. One of the key aspects of risk perception uh, is uh, whether or not you have a tangible uh, interface with uh, that, that reality or not. If you know it, you feel it, you understand it, it presents a dramatic more, uh, a dramatically higher level of risk potential uh, than perhaps an abstract concept.
There are popular movements in many countries, uh, and these are forcing authorities to make changes. There is national pressure, there is international pressure. Tremendous amount of pressure externally uh, on the United States because of our consumption, because of our contribution uh, to the world's pollution load to change our behaviors. It's slow going because of our economy, because of our culture, but I think I have great hope in the future that uh, we perhaps can be responsible consumers, that we can change our own behaviors, uh, not necessarily wait for government uh, to tell us what to do, but that we take personal pride uh, in uh, being sustainable in our own daily lives. Some of these successes include some voluntary action taken by many of the world's major industries in reducing uh, resource use and eliminating waste. Uh, many companies have adopted the three P's, uh, pollution prevention pays. If a company has a byproduct or a waste stream and can turn that into a product, it enhances their bottom line. Businesses are in business to do business uh, and to make money. Uh, the green aspect of modern business and industry is being enhanced by the people uh, like yourselves uh, that graduate into uh, the uh, key positions of leadership in those companies. Uh, governments in various developed regions across the globe have been successful in reducing air pollution in many major cities. There's been many uh, initiatives for sustainable development uh, policies that involve communi communities, uh, NGOs, political agencies. Uh, in a certain sense, in many of the world's countries, uh, citizens are not waiting for governments and politicians to act. They're changing the way they do things on a very local basis. The number of parties that uh, have signed on to multilateral agreements like Kyoto, like Montreal, has increased. Uh, you can see uh, each one of these bars represents a major multilateral uh, environmental agreement, uh, 1971 to 2004. Uh, on the uh, y-axis, the number of countries uh, signing. You can see that uh, over the past decades, the number of countries that are signing on to these agreements have uh, dramatically increased. There are still some knowledge gaps in terms of our global environmental outlook. Uh, we still lack a comprehensive view of some of the interactions and impacts of global and interregional processes. We lack some of the information on the current state of the environment uh, and uh, how it uh, interacts with human activity. We don't have clear science uh, on many attributes and aspects of the human relationship to the environment. There are a few tools to assess how developments in one region, transboundary effects, uh, will affect others. There's also the sociological questions, the cultural questions that we have to ask ourselves. Uh, are the dreams and aspirations in one region compatible with global sustainability? Uh, can we bring up the world's developing nations uh, in a fair and equitable way in terms of quality of life? access to health care services, uh, access to quality of life, uh, at the same time uh, managing global sustainability. We need to approach tackling the root causes. Many of the environmental problems are not policy-based. They have to do with us, our own personal resource consumption, the, the decisions that we make as individuals, as communities. We need to look at reducing population growth, managing population better, reorient consumption patterns, uh, increase the efficiency of resource use, including recycling, figure out how to maintain or increase the standard of living while decreasing impacts on the environment. We need to be more creative, perhaps, 
uh, one use is perhaps of a resource is not good enough. We need to find out how to reuse and recycle fundamental commodities like water. Uh, think about it. Uh, when you take a shower, you are taking a resource uh, and that goes out the drain and gets uh, 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 essentially put to waste. In many environments, the access to fresh water, uh, coupled with uh, economic and population growth and development, is not going to allow that resource to have just one use. We have to come up with new approaches to engineering water reuse and recycling. We need to look at taking an integrated approach, integrate these various environmental issues into mainstream thinking. Uh, perhaps, uh, unfortunately, in uh, the United States, uh, green thinking has become colored with politics. I think having a relationship to environment is not a political relationship, although it's been mapped as having such. We need to look at agriculture, trade, investment, research and development, infrastructure and finance, and how we can green those activities, not in a political way, but in a relationship to the environment fashion. We need to integrate environmental management in terms of everything that we do. When we make a decision to drive three blocks to the grocery store, we are making a decision to consume resources at the cost, perhaps, on a collective basis of enhancing damage to the environment. We need better international action to improve the environment, coordination and agreements often tough when, in fact, some of the nations of the world have trouble even talking to each other. In terms of environmental toxicology, the course at hand, there are challenges as well within this subdiscipline of science. We need to have the development of scientific methodology and data to enhance our understanding of the impact of contaminants on environmental systems. We have a good approach, but perhaps not the best approach to risk assessment, risk management, and modifying behaviors. We need to go beyond the organismal level in terms of wildlife communities, perhaps to the population level. How are we impacting uh, wildlife in terms of uh, contamination? We need to go beyond acute chronic endpoints, uh, looking for uh, processes and consequences of system disruption. We need to look at perhaps subclinical. Uh, impacts, uh, molecular biology, cellular biology changes in terms of predicting the life cycle and the overall consequences of the new chemicals, especially, and some of the older chemicals that are in common use. We need to go beyond single and towards a multi-chemical assessment of exposure and also the dose understanding and the toxic endpoints associated with multiple exposures of multiple types of chemicals, sometimes with uh, uh, confounding interactions in terms of additive or synergistic effects. Some of the challenges in this discipline, we need some better approaches to risk assessment that balance uh, precaution with reality. Every time we do uh, uh, invoke the precautionary principle and modify our behaviors, there is a cost to society. Uh, perhaps in some cases we are being overcautious and in others we are being undercautious. 
we need to be able to focus our decisions better. And we focus our decisions better when we have better science, better knowledge, better understanding of this particular relationship of a chemical with living systems. We need new research on integrated systems approaches to understanding environmental chemistry at the biological interface. What happens? How do we mitigate? How do we minimize the potential for negative consequence when, in fact, some chemicals in use have wonderful consequences in terms of making us healthier, making food more abundant, making our lives better in terms of our relationship with the environment. Finally, we need to educate the world's people about personal linkages to environmental quality. Well, this gives you uh, uh, the end of the story here in environmental toxicology. This course, Principles of Environmental Toxicology, is a joy for me to teach. Um, hopefully, you as a student uh, enrolled in the course have found this to be useful in terms of enhancing your overall understanding of the relationship to chemicals and organisms, the relationship of human activities uh, as we produce synthetic uh, chemicals in terms of overall environmental health, and perhaps even more importantly, a better understanding of nature and the role of chemicals in nature. I've been honored uh, to be uh, working with you as your instructor in this course uh, this semester. I look forward to hearing about the great things that you do in your future. With that, Godspeed. Good luck to you. Thanks so much.